Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast once again with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have one of my favorite return guests, Gary Mitchell, come back. And what we're going to be talking about today is developing customer insight, the customer journey, and how you create customer success without the wheels coming off. There is no point bringing us in or anybody in to double, triple, quadruple your revenues if everything is going to go tits up afterwards because your operations and your customer success can't cope. If your business isn't prepared for that, then you're going to be in deep, deep trouble. So Gary and I are going to discuss in great detail how you establish where you are, where you want to be, and how you can win, and how you can design and build your business in order to ensure that. Gary, welcome. Hello, Marcus. Nice to join you again. And, uh, you know, this is a subject I feel very passionate about, so I'm pleased to Excellent. So I'm looking forward to the fact that you've come with uh, your shotgun locked and loaded. So I, I want to dispel a few myths. I want people to walk away from this with practical, applic- applicable advice that they can implement and uh, identify the blind spots and pitfalls that they're likely to fall into. So I know that one of the key things that you do is you bring teams together in order to help them secure investment and or achieve scalable growth. Talk to me a little bit about your background in doing that, maybe a couple of examples. That's what I do now, but actually the background was rescuing broken transformation programs. And I kind of fell into bringing teams together, um, you know, how to bring teams together, because when you deal with a broken transformation program, the break is due to the fact that the teams, the functions are not aligned on where they need to get to. And so actually, um, I had 30 years practice of bringing people together onto where are we trying to get to with this? When we've finished all our digital transformation or our business transformation, what is the operating vision for the business? So what does it have to do? How much of it do we have to cope with? And, you know, are we seamless? Are we joined up? So have we got the same vision of how this thing will work? So really, when I started working on strategy, I brought the creating a joined up vision of the future business into strategy making. So that, that's, that's my history. Okay, so let, let's start with some common blind spots that leaders and management teams and uh, operational teams will have uh, that will prevent them from creating this alignment? The first blind spot working with teams on strategy now and customer-focused strategy is that when I read strategy documents for new clients, their old strategy documents, when I read their websites, when I read their materials, I don't find the customer mention. And by that, I mean, I don't find the individuals within clients mentioned. So people are great at talking about themselves. So companies are great at talking about themselves. We do this, we're great at this, we have brilliant people, we have the best technology, we have the whatever. What I don't find is much information on who the individuals are within the client businesses they're targeting and what problems these people have and what success means to these people 
and how we actually engage with these businesses or with these individuals to bring success. And most of the early work I do is is working with the senior team to identify where the customer opportunity is, i.e., which individuals are we helping, how do we bring success, and where are we best positioned to be the partner for these people. And you need to do that because you can't, if you look at your customer journey without isolating where we need to play, then actually what you're trying to do is be all things to all people. And actually being all things to all people is impossible. And that's what leads to you become some things to some people or, or everything to no, nothing to nobody, which, which is a, you know, which is a, a recipe for disaster. In terms of a quick self-audit, if people are to look in the ugly mirror, what should they be looking for to evidence that they uh, do not really understand their customer, what their proposition is, what the journey is? What are the obvious indicators that a leader or some concerned company officer can point to and say, ah, that's an indication that we're barking up the wrong tree and we're trying to please everyone and therefore we'll please no one? The starting point I always use is... um, Especially, I mean, this works better for B2B customers, but actually you can make it work for B2C, is list your current customers, list your main customers, and talk about your main customers and and put them in groups, okay? And what I always find is that, say, if there's five main groups people are selling to now, because you always have to start from where you are now to go to the future, it's only about two or maybe three of these groups that have the real growth opportunity and growth potential. The rest of the customers we're selling to are actually people we've sold to to make our numbers or people we're sold to because we've always sold to. They don't contain the future opportunity. So the ugly mirror is look at your own customers and look at who you're selling to and then tell me, if this group of customers is your future opportunity or not. And what I find is people, A, they haven't bothered grouping their customers together by the customer success group, if you like, or the key challenge that their customers are facing. So they basically go, well, here's a big customer, we sell to them, but actually they're selling two or three things and the two of the things are things they've managed to sell on the back of the first thing, but really the first thing is that their primary reputation, their brand and their future. And really, we need to build a strategy around that that one thing that we need to become known for and not the peripheral stuff. Right. Okay. So I have a particular case in point at the moment that I'm thinking of where they offer best in class across a full service for serving a particular segment, but they're only currently known for one or two components of that. So competitors are able to displace them in accounts. Does this work for that type of organization where they should be operating a land and expand and their segmentation is based on a vertical or a segment of the market? Well, what we look at is, first of all, let's, let's talk about the individual 
if we look not at the customer, but at the individual, and if you look at, um, I don't know, I've got fintech examples, yeah. where you, if you look at the customer, you've got to look at the customer's problem. And the customer's problem is never, hardly ever, that they're short of software or they're short of a, a piece of capability. It is they have an objective to get from A where they are now to B another place. And that will be in their language, in their terms. They will be expanding their customer base or reducing their cost base or doing both or transforming the organization or, 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 or connecting functions better within their organization. And if you don't speak that language and address that challenge that is going to create success for that individual, then you won't succeed. So whether it's whether you're able to land and expand depends on how that person in that buying occasion sees their challenge at that moment. Now, if you've engaged them with a capability play, you're unlikely to be, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're then engaged in them about, well, we're the best people in this area and you're not the best people in the other area. If you're engaging them in a more, more transformational play, I'll help you get from A to B, then actually you need to be seen as a player that can transform, that can be a transformational partner, the right partner, and then the capabilities and the pieces of software take a second, you know, take a lower position. You're not fighting on how different is my software. You're fighting on how good am I at being a partner. As I say, fintech and technology plays I've seen at the moment are focused on the piece of software rather than actually being an effective partner to the customer. And that, I think, is where you know, and if you focus on that higher level, how do I be the best choice of partner to this customer in making their journey from A to B? Remember, if they're buying a capability, it's only one component of the journey from A to B. And if others bring more components and are better partners, then you're going to lose ultimately. So you've got to look at the customer and the buying occasion that they've got and the challenge, uh, the strategic challenge that they face to understand how best to position yourself for that situation. That makes an enormous amount of sense. I think, Marcus, that most technology companies miss this because technology companies are run or founded by technologists, and they're focused on how beautiful their piece of technology is. And they keep building and expanding this technology and the story about their own technology. And actually, that's the wrong story. The story should be on the customer's uh, outcomes from using the technology and the, and, and the customer's journey, where the customer needs to get to. So the beginning stage is establishing a clear focus, identifying insights around who your current customers are, what the buyer types are, and getting absolute clarity on the different types of buying occasion, the who, what, and the why, and then really mapping out where you are positioned in relation to the competition, in terms of market size, how the market is evolving. And then looking at the opportunity in terms of future customers and the aspirational space that you want to bring in terms of future value and potential 
to those customers and positioning yourself with what is in effect a winning proposition. Is that right? Yeah, that that's that's broadly right. I mean, I think you know, I wouldn't despair about these companies because the the thing is, the knowledge is inside the business. Everything you've talked about there, people inside the business, if I engage them and talk about one or two customers, they know everything about the buying occasion, everything about what the customer wants, everything about how the customer's thinking, what the competition was at the time, how we were positioned against the competition. That is known for the customers you have engaged with already. and. What I have to, you know, my big message to, to, to companies is don't engage research to learn about where you should be playing. Look at the customers you've got now and mine this detailed information on how the, the, the buying dynamic worked and who you were competing with and how you won or how you lost and what what really was the customer trying to do and how well did we fit into that? That information is within your organization if you can be bothered to look. And actually, I say to my clients, you know, the, 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 most of the value I am bringing here is actually sitting, sitting you down and giving you a, a space to talk about and understand the insights that you've gained from your existing customers slow them down don't don't get an existing com- customer push it behind you and keep looking forward let's just look back figure out what we've learned figure out what it's telling us and then apply what that tells us to the future about where we need to play how we need to position and then take that forward and look at our customer journey and say, well, how well are we doing in this situation in our marketing, in our sales lead generation, our sales conversion, our client deployment, and our, our, and how we how we work with the client to generate customer success? Okay. So it sounds to me like this is a cross-functional team, but it starts primarily by talking to the operators who are at the coalface touching the customer. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, if I talk about the customer, I start with the salespeople because the buying occasion and who we were positioned against and what our proposition was right is very important. But if I don't talk to the uh, operational team or the deployment team or the support, support team or even finance about the same customer, then I don't have the complete picture. Because uh, sales can think the customer's wonderful and operations will be fuming, spitting. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, because the customer is a bloody nightmare. It's uh, the, the salesperson's trousered the, boat, the, 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 the commission and, and pissed off to another one. Whereas the op- operations are left for three years to operate a customer that's fundamentally unprofitable and, and getting beaten up by finance every month. So you've got to speak to all sides and you've got to make all sides appreciate that growth and profitability is everybody's challenge. It also speaks to the fact that I think you need to have marketing involved very early on in this process as well, because ultimately, if they're attracting the wrong type of customer for sales to sell to, 
just because they've closed that type of business before doesn't mean that they should be going after that type of business in the future. Is that fair? Yes, and I think marketing, the temptation is to is to talk the language of bullshit rather than the language of what the customer actually needs. So, in, you know, they don't talk English, they talk... And marketing fall into the fall into the trap of expanding on how brilliant we are. And really the customer, yeah, okay, the customer wants to work with a brilliant business, but the customer's main priority is achieving their own objectives. So you've got to connect with those objectives and you've got to connect and you can't be all things to all people. And all if you're trying to be all things to all people and not close off any avenues then actually what you tend to do, the language becomes bland and bullshitty, like I said, because you're trying to just, you're trying to include everybody. And I think communication, as you, as you regularly bang on about in your podcasts, is, is, is if you're not focused, you're wasting money, you're throwing money away because it's ineffective. And you must be absolutely clear, ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups, mismatched expectations. Disappointment. So that clarity is really key, but making sure that all aspects that will affect the lifetime experience and outcomes of the customer and your own people are critical because if sales makes a sale, but operations has three years of hell ahead of them before the company gets fired and you don't make a decent profit, the knock on effect of that can be significant in terms of morale, staff turnover, and also tying up resources that shouldn't be tied up. Because what I've seen very often, and I I read, um, I can't remember where I read it, but 40% of tickets raised at the help desk are created because engineers built the product without speaking to the customer. So they came up with a bright idea and they didn't make it easy and frictionless for the customer to use it. So you end up with lower adoption rates. You end up with tickets being raised because people don't understand how to use the product. And if they, you don't get early adoption, then you won't get the consumption and you won't create the habit. The impact of a bad customer, the impact of not serving a customer well, you know, if you've got an unprofitable customer, you're probably serving them badly. They're probably not going to be a repeat customer. They're probably not going to be an advocate. Okay. So if you sold to the wrong people in the wrong way, you're creating a rod for the sales back as well as the, the profit impact and the profitability. If I can come back to the marketing, it all comes back to understanding the buyer occasion or the buying occasion. If, I'm, if I have a problem, I'm looking for a solution and I'm looking for a solution in a certain way. And if I'm looking to transform, if I'm one of your clients looking to transform my operation or change, or change my customer base or expand my, the customers I can serve, where am I looking? Understanding that by occasion is critical for targeting the marketing. So am I looking for a partner? Am I looking for just a component of a bigger solution? What am I looking for? And where would I look for that? And and I don't think enough thought is put into 
where these people are looking and how they look. If I'm looking for a partner, I'm not probably not Googling. I'm probably um, 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 looking at references and, and people who've used somebody before. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my, who my competitors use. I'm looking at, I, I don't know. But what, I, what I, my experience is that a lot of marketing departments see their role as publicity and of creating collateral and putting collateral out there and, and operating effective social media sites, you know, and, and I, I'm not sure that all that is needed because on some occasions the solution sought is very complex and I don't look for a, an answer for a complex solution on social media. So why, why am I bothering with that? I see a lot of organizations across revenue operations having invested in a lot of technology spaghetti in order to try and drive pipeline. But what they're really doing is spending anywhere near enough time on understanding who their best customers are and simply focusing their attention on attracting more of them. An A customer can be worth 12, 50 times more than a C. And when you multiply that out across the customer lifetime, then that can be infinitely more profitable. And it can also act as a fantastic reference and provide you with a plethora of hero's journey stories. So that from a sales perspective, you can create peer curiosity and peer envy to open the dialogue with new ideal customers. And far too little emphasis, in my experience, particularly with technology uh, scale-ups, is placed on the retention, expansion, and customer bliss, that obsession with serving the customer. It's all focused on growth and new logo acquisition. To my mind, that just creates a rod for your own back. My pal, Charlie Green, who created the concept of the trusted advisor, was speaking to an investment banker before he went on stage. And the investment banker turned up and said, Charlie, just so you know what you're dealing with here, I got into investment banking because the only thing I'm interested in is making money. I don't give a fuck about the customer. Um, And Charlie's response was, well, you don't think that your customer recognizes that? And he then went on to say that long-term behavior and long-term thinking delivers short-term results. But what do you think short-term thinking does? And the reality is what you end up doing is you take on the wrong customers. It then creates a downstream series of uh, catastrophes because you've got this churn, which means that you have a massive tariff on sales to generate additional new business that they wouldn't otherwise need to. So it's constraining growth. It creates pressure on customer success. So those resources are spending time fixing uh, fire problems and putting out fires. And my friend Amy Woodall says it rather profoundly, which is the customer's not always right, but when they're wrong, it's often our fault. And the problem is if you sold to the wrong people, if you haven't told them about the gaps and the shortfalls in your proposition, when those occur, then they are disappointed. And it feels like you withheld something critical to their decision. 
I've written about 20 business plans for private equity growth businesses, and the shape of the plan is always the same. It starts with creating clear view of who our customers are, so where we play, who we target, what their issues are, where we play. We've just talked about that. Then we look for who are what I call our halo customers, who are the referenceable customers. And I need, I know I need about four or five referenceable customers that everybody else in the industry will look at and go, wow, these guys do business with those guys. Therefore, I'm going to consider them. So my first question is, who are those four or five referenceable customers? Have you got them now? And have you fully leveraged them by, A, making them successful? Because they won't give you a customer story and an effective reference or be an advocate if you haven't made them spectacularly successful. So we have to talk about how we do that and, and, and how much time we're putting and effort we're putting into that because uh, quite a lot of customers actually sell deploy and then piss off and wait for the phone to ring okay the drive by shooting yeah and so if you're not making your four or five referenceable customers upon which the sales of the next 50 will depend if you're not making those people spectacularly successful then actually you are throwing an anchor out of the boat and you're go- you're go- you're 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 slowing your growth okay so if you make if you make those customers spectacularly uh, uh, successful they will be advocates you will be able to get good customer stories you will you know and that'll feed all your marketing they will probably be repeat customers as well and that will drive the sales or or be the foundation for the sales of the next 30 the next 50 and then once you've got the next 30 or 50 actually you're a big player and you 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 are then automatically in the consideration set for everybody else but i will say that the four or five referenceable customers need to be you know in a clearly focused segment i use a fintech example where if we're targeting if I work for a payments processor, and payments processing can be used by neobanks, can be used by people who bring wearables to market, can be used by people who have an FX proposition. But actually, if we focused, we focused on neobanks, on we are the best people to make a neobank or a new digital bank successful and, and support them throughout their growth. And actually, what you find is if you focus on that segment, people with FX propositions, with wearable propositions, with other payment propositions, are attracted to that because a neobank is a halo customer. It is a it is a very sexy place to be, and everybody else looks at that and goes, "Oh my God, these people are in that space. Maybe we should be working with them." So choosing your space. Choosing your referenceable customers and making them working out what you have to do as a business to make them spectacularly successful is critical to achieving hyper growth. That's an overused term, but growth. So, it is the key message here to sacrifice in your marketing and your go to market the rest of those segments 
knowing that if you do well within your core uh, Halo customer segment, um, that people in associated or closely aligned areas will look at that and say, ah, we want some of it too. Yes, absolutely. It keeps your language really specific. I'm trying to think of an example from real life, but I'm struggling at the moment under the pressure of the podcast, uh, Marcus. So okay, I, stop, I'd like stop to for a second. On. Let's talk that through then. If I understand you correctly, it's really about, in terms of your positioning, hyper-specializing. So it's no longer good enough to be the software provider into finance. Uh, you now need to be the software provider into wealth management uh, organizations, trading at a specific level of, say, a billion to uh, 30 billion under management. And then from there, people will see on the basis of the good brands in those areas that you serve that you're an attractive proposition. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, I'm, t- I'm talking about, uh, yeah, specialization. But to build on your example, you know, we need more than the actual physical characteristics of the company. We need to have a problem associated with that. So that mi- those mid-range wealth managers, we need to be the provider or the partner that's helped them transform their business from uh, an old model to a new model. Or Right, so uh, moving from old legacy systems to the cloud yeah. uh, and... Um, helping them uh, do digital transformation so that they can create a more seamless onboarding process, uh, all that kind of thing. Yeah, we we don't even need to go to that detail of seamless onboarding because their problem is not articulated in, oh, I haven't got seamless onboarding. Their problem is more likely articulated in terms of, We've got all this old shit we're doing our business on now. How the hell do I escape this and become more like that company over there or even get ahead of that company over there? All the specific checklist of things, the the detailed things that the software brings are actually secondary to the what's the best and most cost-effective and who do I trust to take me to this new place, Right. And if you become that partner that can be trusted to take a wealth manager beset by legacy systems um, or or pulled down or with an unfit cost base to a new place, which is a seamless digital space, you know, the seamless and digital, what I'm trying to say, Marcus, is the seamless and digital is, is how you do something. The something is the destination. The destination is I need to be more agile with my customers. I need to show be able to show my customers in real time what their well position is. Blah blah blah. You know, I don't I don't know what they are because I haven't looked into that business. But it is an attribute of the client and their customers, not an attribute of your software. Which which <laughs> so if you can. So, so if you can be that partner, if you can be that partner to five or six recognized businesses, then other businesses will look at that. And other business with smaller, lesser needs, lesser problems, there may be in the digital space at the moment, but they're looking to enhance their capabilities. They, they're not, they've not got the full transformational problem, but they've got some other little problems around 
going fully digital, they will also look to you because obviously you're an expert. You do the full transformation. I will use a personal example in that I was a program director for a long time and other program directors usually list all the things they can do. Whereas I just position myself as I'm a program rescue expert, right? So if I'm a program rescue expert, it is fucking obvious that I can operate a Gantt chart, right? I don't have to list the Gantt chart ability. I'm a program rescue expert. Listen, guys, don't worry about the small stuff. I've got all that covered. I'm going to rescue your project. Your project's fucked. Your project wants to be rescued. I'll do it. It's that kind of thing. Okay, so what I'm hearing here is that no one buys anything unless it's going to create value. So the critical question that we have to be able to answer as a vendor is how do we help you find the best ways to transform? And can we show you where to invest to maximize the impact and value for you and your customers? How do you make the best decisions with finite resources? And how do we help you make the best future investment decisions and focus on those areas that will bring you closest to your desired outcomes? And how can we connect the different parts of your business the people, the processes, the systems, the departments to help deliver the strategy and vision with the customer at the heart of everything that you do. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, there's two things on that. There's there's one, how do we help our customers? So where do we position? What's our specialization? And what transformation are we helping them? And that is one part of the equation. Then we look back at ourselves and go, well, how good are we at communicating with those people in that situation, how good are we we at converting them, how good are we at deploying our solutions, how good are we at supporting them once they are engaged. And that is, I use a tool, very technical tool based on (laughs) post-its. It's called Customer Journey Mapping, where we take each function and the leader's and the what I call the key lieutenants, so the internal leaders from each function, three or four people from each function, and we map each step in the journey. Now, people go, oh, my God, we do thousands of things. That's never true because actually you deal with real customers. You don't do thousands of things. Otherwise, your customers would be confused. You do low tens number of things in each function, and I'm thinking about the key steps. What do you do? What do you do next? Who does it? What do they do it on? And is it fit for purpose? That's all I'm looking for when I'm mapping. And what you get when you do that is you get a picture of your business on the wall of the conference room. Remember those old days when we could be in conference rooms? Um, and you get each function's picture and you get whether each function's picture actually seamlessly joins up with the next function's picture. And you also get for each step, whether it is red, amber, or green. And if it's amber or red, we can talk about if we fixed the issue that is in this step, does that represent a breakthrough? Does it represent a step forward? For the business? Does it get us more customers? Does it 
change the, our cost base and our ability to serve. Because what we're looking for in strategy is basically when we've decided where we want to play, we're looking for the four or five things we can do or change in our business that give us a step up from where we are now. That's what we're looking for when we're doing the customer mapping. Now, the customer journey mapping brings everybody together. And it's the first time, what I've found is the first time that people have seen visually how their business works. And people are, I, I, I use the word amazed, but actually, <laughs> actually it is amazed. When I bring them into workshops, and I bring three or four people into workshops, I say, look, guys, we're going to map the customer journey. It sounds like a process workshop. Everybody's got the process workshop body language. <laughs> right? and, and then, but as you get into it, so you go, what's wrong? What, 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 sorry, what do you do? What do you do next? What do you do it on? Is it shit? Oh, it's shit. Oh, red sticky. Why is it shit? Why, why, what's that? Oh, it's those people over there that uh, uh, we haven't got this information. The systems don't bring this. Oh, great. And people get animated. And, and you know, once they've got six red stickies on a step, I, I move them on. <laughs> you know, we know it's shit. But if we fix this, what are the possibilities? and people are full of ideas, you'll find that the, the, the ideas are within the organization already. And so there's energy. And we finish a three-hour session, and people don't want to bloody leave, right? They don't want to leave. And then when, I, when they've left and I've started the next session, they're knocking on the bloody window saying, we've forgotten something. <laughs> you know, well, look, we need to tell you this. And, and the enthusiasm that people have for defining a future vision for their business that is a real step forward from where they are now, if you can capture that, it's a very powerful thing. And if you can do that ahead of transformation, so don't go and buy a piece of software and then say, well, how are we going to deploy this? Why don't we do the sticky exercise, the sticky note exercise first? Develop this you know, let's let's surface all the challenges and opportunities we we have with changing our uh, organisation. Let's build the enthusiasm and the energy for change, and then on the basis of understanding how we need to work in the future, then we choose our IT. In effect, you're mapping the current journey. You're designing the future map. Yes, um, and. To my mind, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. If you're going to make a key strategic investment that's going to cost a lot of time and money yeah. and carry with it significant risk, doing this before you make that investment and before you select your software partner makes a hell of a lot of sense. So vendors who want to gain a competitive advantage, and there is a simple rule in selling, you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. This exercise is going to create significant competitive advantage. If you implement this as part of your sales strategy, as a piece of paid consulting, you can, first of all, demonstrate significant value and points of difference. And what you're also doing is you're getting the customer into the habit of paying uh, you money. But more importantly than that, you get past the initial barrier of getting onto their payment system and getting into their purchase ledger, and uh, you now become a supplier. So there is a really good argument for using this in order to shorten 
the purchase cycle when you're making the main sale. And with this information, you can first of all help them to make the right decision. And it may well be that that decision is do not buy from us, but use this journey mapping in order to make the right purchase decision, which can only build your credibility. Yes, I, I, I think there's two barriers to that. One is the salesperson barrier, which is I want the sale. So most software companies operate on the fact to get the signature first, then we'll do the, the, the mapping or the customer. We'll, we'll sit the customer down and figure out what you want, right? So they want the signature first. But what you've got to realize with a big piece of software is that once you've made the signature, you've actually committed three years of cash flows to that vendor. Okay, so don't buy until you understand what the finishing line is and if that finishing line gives you significant value. For somebody selling to a customer, the nervousness is, as you say, if we put them through this, they might find it's not us. But actually, in 95% of the time, actually, if somebody's shopping for a capability that, and your capability is, is, is in the space, they will want it. What it will mean is you will deploy it properly. The challenge is that none of the other vendors will be offering the chance to spend money up front <laughs> in order to do business with us, and they will rubbish that approach. So you've got to have a very solid argument to the customer to say, look, when we do this mapping exercise, it's your mapping exercise. We're not trying to sell with this. We're trying to get to the right answer because what we don't want is a bad client. And what we want is a successful client. And the way we ensure success is to understand, to have alignment between ourselves and our customers about how everything's got to work when we're finished and about what that value, that return and investment is when we're finished. The issue always was in the old days, Marcus, that putting an SAP system in, for example, an ERP system, sorry, I'm not slagging off SAP on their own, maybe Oracle or shit as well, <laughs> but um, putting an ERP system in, the payback, you'd pay 25 million and you wouldn't get it back, right? You won't sack 25 million worth of people and you won't get 25 million worth of new profitability. So, you know, they were reluctant to do that sort of stuff. In my experience with the, most of these complex and sophisticated software tools, they can deliver the outcome if only they were deployed correctly. And if people put the time in up front, because ERP, CRM, you know, all of these things, Martex, uh, sales enablement technologies can be brilliant if they are deployed well. The problem is that most people are just sold the dream and yeah. the drive-by shooting happens and then you're disappointed because if first use doesn't meet or exceed expectations, then that creates the anticipated regret and blame that is buyer's remorse. And if you start the relationship off with buyer's remorse, you will have three years of hell. Yeah, And the customer will be looking for ways to get out of that contract. And if they can't get out of it, they'll drop you like a hot brick. And in year two, they'll be bringing in uh, other competitors looking to displace you. So I can't stress enough 
the importance of the six Ps in the military. Prior planning prevents piss poor performance. And far too few organizations, uh, vendors, are willing to put themselves in that position of vulnerability where they challenge the purchase process and they get in early enough um, because many of them are reactive and waiting for an, R- an RFP. That's the wrong time to be selling. And it, if all you're doing is responding to an RFP, chances are you're not doing a lot of selling. You need to be your customer's partner and you need to be asking questions like, what are the jobs that they're trying to get done? What progress are they making? What are their struggling moments? Uh, what comes next? Because once you've deployed, then there's all the cross and upsell potential that you can enjoy by understanding how you can help the customer continue that journey. And what flabbergasts me every time I see it is this emphasis on the first sale, not on adoption, not on consumption, and not on the customer outcome. And that I find a travesty. Yeah, I've seen it many times in the private equity space, getting an ERP. Once you're in an RFP situation, what happens is the RFP has a timeline on it. And that timeline is a timeline to decision. And so everybody, they promise the board they'll take a decision on a system by X date and we put an RFP out. The whole purchasing exercise is a tick box and that's dangerous. And in the private equity space, the ERP thing was a tick box. Right, we can sell this company at a higher value if an ERP is, if we've taken the, the, the rat's nest of stuff and we've replaced it by an ERP. So we'll, we'll, we, we, we need to tick the ERP box, go find an ERP. And what happens is they find an ERP. And in one particular example I work with, they had a very, very complex manufacturing, wholesale and distribution supply chain, and they found an ERP, and it, it totally destroyed the business. It locked the business. It was badly deployed because they hadn't thought it through. They hadn't mapped. And the way I do it with, with the way I used to do it on Project Rescue, Program Rescue, and on System Selection, is you map the 2B, uh, the as-is and the 2B process with the client. And then you get you kick the you kick the salesperson out of the out of the room, and you get the system architect, and you point at each step, and you go, "Can your system do that? Can your system do that?" And you watch their body language, and when they start to squirm, you go, "Okay, it can't do that. What's your concern?" And actually, the system architect will give you three or four options, and, and no system can do everything along the chain, and you get the real deal. So you find out that the system, the incoming system can do these things really well. We'll have to integrate, do a inter- piece of integration here. We, you get the full scope of the project. Whereas actually, if you're sold an ERP project, uh, you're sold an ERP and then everything else is your problem outside that. And the change problem becomes the client's problem and it's not our fault but that's no help to the client. You're not an effective partner to the client. This then points to some other really fundamental issues. The first thing is 
the entire organization and especially the salesperson backed by the leadership must be obsessed with the customer's success. The customer success team needs to be brought in early in the sale. Marketing needs to spend their time regularly speaking to actual customers to understand what works and what doesn't work. It needs to feed into product development so that the creases are being constantly ironed out. And the technical people need to be brought in at a much earlier stage in the sales diagnosis process to identify what the problems and concerns are so that those can be addressed. And if they are insurmountable or they are a reason not to buy, then the vendor can gracefully withdraw with their dignity intact, having left the customer or the prospect in a stronger position. So when they do finally put their final RFP together, because there are three types of RFP, there's the fishing exercise where they're comparing and contrasting pricing to see whether or not they can beat up their current supplier. There's the defining the specification type of RFP where they're trying to get ideas and actually they're in passive looking and uh, they're seeking possibilities, but they're not ready to buy. And then you have the final RFP, which is where they've done the heavy lifting or they should have done the heavy lifting and they know what to look for and the pitfalls. And it's your job as a seller to ensure that the prospect is properly equipped to ask the right questions and get to the truth. Yes. I mean, I, I think my own personal opinion is, is on, on software nowadays. If, you, if you're going the RFP route, you know, you, you've lost. It's a difficult job because there's never enough space in an RFP. They won't let you work with the client. They won't. It depends if you're dealing with a strategic or a tactical purchasing team. Yes, yes. That is it, yeah. Most purchasing teams tend to be tactical because they don't know how to do the strategic stuff. This then points back to previous conversations that you and I have had with Jill Robbins around working earlier with procurement because a good strategic procurement team has a 40,000-foot view of the entire operation, and they're seeing all the points of dissatisfaction within the organization, and you can help them join those dots. You can also seed the idea that if you see this pattern of events, these centers of dissatisfaction occurring, then chances are you need to consider revamping your systems, upgrading or replacing. And that means that you need to think about nurturing your pipeline months or certainly years before in many cases. It may be that if you're really smart, what you will be doing is building those relationships, multi-threading throughout the lines of business, engaging with procurement maybe two or even three years before you intend to sell to them because they are not yet ready. If they've just replaced their system and they're tied into a three or five-year contract, at the start, that's when you want to start beginning that relationship building. Yes, and I will say that it's never, it's never about system replacement. People don't go shopping for a system. Well, they go shopping for a system, but they're shopping for a system for a reason. There's always a why. It's the outcome. Yeah. 
And so the why is always a transformational play. It's always because it's a lot of money to get a system and a lot of disruption. So there's got to be a transformational play involved. So I'm either expanding my capabilities to occupy this space. I'm either transforming the cost base. There is always a why, and you have to be the partner for the full why, not just the supplier of a component. That would be my message to people. And the way you do that is to engage early, as you've said, with procurement and with the the heads of, and find out what their strategy is. Where are they trying to move the business to? What is stopping them? moving at the moment. And it may be the lack of a capability, but more likely it is a, you know, for example, in the banking sector, it's it's got a rat's nest of legacy systems and nobody really, you know, everybody's trying to get to the cloud. They don't know how to get to the cloud. They don't know why they want to get to the cloud. And actually the business drivers are lost. And the business drivers are very simple in banking. We've got to reduce the cost base. We've got to leverage our existing capabilities. And we've got to become a more joined up, seamless organization. That is the bank, the IT strategy for all of the major banks. And selling them a piece of lending software, you're leaving it to the client to figure out how that plays into those three things. Okay. And where does cloud play into those three things? Certainly, it's got a part But how you deploy to cloud, when you deploy to cloud, what you deploy to cloud depends on the outcome, the business outcome of the customer. It's not an end in itself. So understanding where the customer needs to go as a business, understanding what the individuals in the business are measured on and what their success depends on is important. And then you figure out where you fit in that story and what you can best bring to help them get to where they need to be. And if you, if it's clear early enough that you understand their world and where they need to get to, then actually the RFP is never issued. You, you get the work because you're a partner. This again points to a couple of other things that I think are really important, which is that you need to understand where you are a moving part in the overall um, infrastructure that will help them to achieve that better future and achieve the strategic objectives of the board. That means that you need to understand how to play nicely with the competition. And another critical question, which I love uh, salespeople to ask is, well, what do we need to replace or what can we replace? Because you can create budget where none exists by replacing half a dozen legacy systems with your system and streamline and make life easier. Because one of the things that I see in many organizations is friction born out of a lack of design and a lack of forethought and building higgledy-piggledy processes, buying systems in uh, willy-nilly. And as a result, what you end up with is people finding they have 14 steps to log in and they've got to jump from one system to another. And each of those manual steps creates the potential for either a security breach or for manual and human error. And if you can deploy a solution that replaces old systems that they're paying multiple times over for, 
that they have to support, they have service issues with, and create operational risk, cost them money, cost them time, then you're genuinely performing as a partner instead of just simply turning up and being another peddler of commodity product. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, I would extend that to you always have to find a significant return on investment the customer, the client recognizes. And you have to help the client identify that because change is costly, disruptive, and risky. So at some point in any change journey, there is always a doubt from the client where where functions start to decommit. They doubt that they're doing the right thing. They don't engage properly, which puts the whole thing at risk, which puts you at risk. If you've held up a significant return on investment and people are motivated by that and they understand that that's a great thing for all of them, that keeps everybody focused and actually will make sure that you're successful with the client. Too many businesses, uh, software businesses, actually sell on a set of features. We've got more features than everybody else and therefore more flexibility for whatever you want to do in the future, which, is, which goes back to what we were saying very much earlier on on the all things to all people argument. You know, So you sell on, it's got more features, then you try and put more features in and you start to fail because you, 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 there's, there's not much added value for these extra features and why are we doing this? We don't need it. Our old systems were better. And that's a faulty way of selling and it all comes from the features-led rather than the outcomes-led sale. And the outcomes-led sale is more difficult it's culturally more difficult for the seller, and it's also culturally more difficult for the buyer because buyers, low-level procurement, non-strategic procurement people, and also people who are given the job of buying yes, within organizations don't think strategically. They've got, they've got to achieve this purchase. Absolutely. And, 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 and you know, it's a challenge for everybody. But actually, if you start the conversations and you can work yourself a level higher in the organization, become a partner for change, a credible partner for change, and even even by showing people, well, the risks of not having these conversations are these. And, and, you know, it may may seem like I'm not trying to get the sale, but actually what I want to do is help us all to do it properly because I want a successful client. You want a successful step up from A to B, we're all happy. So please spend the time. So uh, again, as a word of warning to any vendor organization, you have to have those strategic high-level conversations very early on. So you understand uh, where the company is being led to. And if you are not aligning with that, then you'll just be number 74 on the purchasing decision-making committee's uh, agenda, you'll never get to the top. And so this is where it's critical as a seller that you do your research. You need to listen to the analyst calls if they're a publicly listed company, not just so that you can hear what's being said, but also to find out where the CEO and the CFO 
stumble, where they're feeling pressure. You need to do your research in terms of their annual report and accounts, because typically there will be a first section, which will be all the blue sky bullshit that they're peddling to investors. And then section 1B is the section that has all the caveats. You need to have those frank conversations with the executive team and the leadership team in order to ensure that you understand the biggest challenges that they're facing. Because if you can help them overcome those, automatically you have their attention. And you need to have done this research before you start setting foot in the C-suite. And it makes a good deal of sense to that before you do all of that, go back to your Halo customers and find out what strategic value you have been able to deliver so that you can then approach the CEO or the CFO or the COO and say something along the lines of, Gary, we've done our research and we've identified 37 different ways that we can help you solve problems in your business. We understand that it's worth X millions of pounds. We're pretty sure that you won't have the budget or the will or the resources to cover them all. Can we come in, spend half an hour with you, identify what they are, and then prioritize the top 10 to 12 so that you can make a decision on how you can fix those. And those will be the ones that will get you 80% of the way where you want to get to. Yeah. Now, it's a very compelling conversation to have, and it's a great intro. You need to have done your research. and you need to be come in equipped so that you can deliver insight early. If you can't deliver insight early to a C-level executive, odds are you've got two minutes before you leave with a boot print on your ass. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what I'm also hearing is that by going through this process, you help the organization actually understand the customer journey because each of them will only understand the bit that they typically touch. And so you end up breaking down silos that exist that create a disconnected and dissatisfying customer experience. And you'll smooth out the handover from marketing to sales to customer success to operations. And as a result of that, you will end up with fewer complaints, fewer tickets raised, fewer support calls, And that will make you more efficient, more profitable, and allow you to spend more time on developing and deepening the relationship with the customer so that you can be strategic instead of tactical. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. I mean, the customer journey mapping, people are scared of because they think it will surface hundreds of issues. But actually what it does, as yes, it surfaces uh, 37 things, But what it does do also is show that there are five or three things we can do that will make this big impact. And actually the others, yeah, they're there. But if we do these three things, then 23 of the others go away and we're we're in a massively better place. So actually customer journey mapping, people fear it will overcomplicate the, the issue. It actually simplifies the issue. And you can do it before you do the detail. You can do it at the high level with the senior team by getting them to walk through their own value chain, the five or eight or 10 value chain components and and asking them simply what works well, what doesn't work well, so that we can see where the ROI opportunity might be. 
before we engage them and say, well, there's ROI opportunity there. Can we do a mapping in, in, in this area with those people? Just spend a couple of hours with them and, and find out the specifics and, and especially find out what are the two or three or the one or two in that area, breakthrough things we could do that could lift you from position A to position B and make a significant impact on this business and therefore justify your investment in, in so, this. So that will then give you the insight into what it will take in terms of investment, technology, yeah. the yeah. skills you need to develop or bring in, yeah. the uh, bandwidth you need to create or free up, how yeah. you're going to have to shift your culture and behaviors. And then Absolutely. once you've validated that with the senior team and got their endorsement for the recommendations and priorities, then you can focus on developing a simple plan with key initiatives and really focus on identifying who owns which work stream and focus on the short, medium, and long-term objectives so that you can deliver the success factors that the customer is paying for. Is that correct? Realistically, a business, any business of any size, only has a bandwidth to change three to eight things in the next 18 months. And picking those and focusing on those and having those so choosing the right things that make the biggest impact and upping the ante on those things actually does two things. One, it, it forces the leadership team to, to, to make a commitment. So if you, if you say, will we, will we make progress on, on 37 things, everybody will say, yes, we'll work as hard as we can and we'll, we'll get most of them over the line. That is a recipe for non delivery and uh, we're not going to transform because ev everybody will choose different things and, and it'll all be a big mush and we'll fail at most of them but if you say these five things are the biggest provide the biggest wins and if we don't do these five things we don't do get to do the next 18 things then you up the ante on the five things and if you start making significant progress on those five things the organization looks at the leadership team and goes, we promise to move on the five things. We're making significant progress. We believe these guys are serious and everybody gets back on the change program. So, Okay, Gary, it, we've, it, hit, it, we've hit the top of the hour. Um, we have. Tell me, how, can, how can people get hold of you? The best way is LinkedIn. Gary Mitchell, type in Gary Mitchell programs, Gary Mitchell strategy, Gary Mitchell projects. You'll get to me and you'll probably see a younger version of this ugly face. And then <laughs> uh, you can uh, <laughs> you, you can then email me from there. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Gary Mitchell, right. thank you. Thanks, Marcus. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, then please listen again, take some notes. And I'm sure you know someone who would benefit from learning from what Gary and I have discussed. So please share this with them, tag them when uh, you see the post. Now, if you want to get hold of me, then you can email me, marcus at laughs-last.com, or you can direct message me on LinkedIn. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.